Hey everybody, how's it going? I'm Don. Thanks for being here. This is the Today's Just Okay podcast. So good morning or afternoon or evening, whenever it happens to be that you are listening to this. Hopefully you're having a good day. And it is, good Lord, what day is today? The December the 24th. So oof, just in time for the holidays. Yeah, this episode's a little late. I do apologize. Life happened. Had a lot of projects going on sort of the pre-Christmas rush at work where everybody I work with is just kind of hammering us with um, with submissions that we have to get done as, as soon as possible. So between that and clinic and having to just kind of take care of the usual sort of things in life, I did not have time to record prior to now. So if you're still here, <laughs> thanks for being here. I'm going to try to make up with it. Uh, Sorry, I'm going to try and make up for it with another episode in short order, just because I feel bad that I took so long to get this one out. But in any event, um, it's a big episode today, Uh, a lot of interesting stuff to talk about, so hang on tight. Today's topic is fronting, or really basically, you know, why we pretend to be someone we are not. In other words, why it's okay not to know everything or have done everything or own everything. I think there's a better way to live than projecting an artificial personality or having a bunch of crap that we don't need. And I'm sure that a lot of a lot of us would probably agree with that. Also have a question that came in about parental rights. So a couple of episodes ago I talked about parental rights in the context of of schools and, and that type of thing. So I got a question to answer about that. And a tip of the day regarding prioritizing. Um, Yeah, because as you can as you can tell, (laughs) I need some help with that anyway. And then um, if I have time, I will read chapter three of Lancet at the very end. I'm just going to need to see how long the episode is all all in before I commit. So stick around to the end. And if it's short enough, I will read chapter three, and if it's a little bit too long, what I'll do is I'll wait until next episode and then read chapter three then. So all of that is coming up, but first, a little bit of a warm-up. Let's see here. I got a message from someone this week who listens to the podcast, so thank you very much. This is a young man that I met like eight or nine years ago, I think. He was a summer student in high school. I kind of taught him the ropes of working in an administrative office and He taught me how to play tennis, uh, which was pretty awesome, I gotta say. Anyway, this is what he wrote me. He says, hey, Don, hope you're doing well. Just listened to your last podcast about mentorship, and it was great. Just wanted to say, even though I guess it was indirectly a mentor-mentee thing, you were definitely a great mentor and a role model in my youth. At the blank, that's basically where we worked. Even though I ended up choosing a career very different than where we met, uh, it would definitely instilled in me core values of teamwork and how to succeed in any work environment. Just thought I should share that with you and say you're killing it with the podcast. We'll get together soon. I'm in the middle of a nine exam month. <laughs> so, But yeah, it was kind of my first real mentorship opportunity, although it was very informal and I didn't really know what I was doing. And there was definitely no expectation that I do any of that as part of his experience. It was just something that I, I thought was kind of interesting. And I was talking about the same stuff then as I am now. I wasn't very organized. I was just blabbing on about things that I had learned from my own mistakes and what I wished I knew when I was growing up. You know, just things about school and work and trying new things and how it would have been helpful if I'd figured out how life 
really worked earlier and specifically things that I was interested in doing or the types of jobs that existed for specific skill sets and how hard it is to make money, how debt works. I mean, when I graduated university, I had a lot of student debt that kind of, you know, slowed me down because there's only so much forgiveness that you can get from the actual, you know, government programs. And then in addition to that, you just kind of have to pay it off and there's interest and all the rest of it. And when you're starting out, it's kind of the worst possible, the worst possible way to start out is in debt. So I wish I would have understood that more when I signed up and worked harder at keeping that lower. Because if I had done that, it wouldn't have been as hard for me and my wife when we were just getting started. And then also just kind of the importance of the social and educational aspects of school and university and learning on the job and that type of thing. And just how you can use every experience to build on yourself, right? Build up your confidence, learn how to own your mistakes and move on without having that sort of endless stress. And so this kid, well, I guess he's a young man now. I saw a lot of potential in him then, and I'm happy to say that he is so far beyond that. It's mind-blowing, really. He's in dental school now. He just started uh, this fall. And I don't know if you know anything about dental school, but it's extremely difficult to get in. So the fact that he did that means he's clearly driven and smart. He's a very hard worker. And I just, I wish I had been that focused at his age, honestly. So all I can really say is just that I'm extremely proud of what he's done and where he's going. And I mean, I know that there's going to be challenges. Not everything is sunny and happy all the time. I'm sure he has days where it's just like, ugh, what am I doing? Or ugh, you know, I wish, I wish I hadn't made the choices I've made. (laughs) Honestly, I doubt that. But I just, I think he's got all the pieces that he needs to get through any difficult situations that come up. And if he doesn't, I'm sure he knows that he has people around him who would be happy to help if anything does come up. I mean, I know I would. So I'm wishing him well, very, very well, and thanking him for listening. It means a lot to know that he thinks back fondly on the experience. I know I do. And that that he feels like he got something out of it, you know, because that was the whole point was making sure that I wasn't just kind of rambling on, but actually imparting some sort of useful information. Anyway, I think he's got like nine exams this semester. So although it's the 24th, so they're probably over now. So I'm sure he, I'm sure he crushed it. But at the same time, I'm probably not out of line in saying that he's, he's probably happy they're over too. So anyway, I hope he gets some rest and enjoys the holidays and then picks it back up in the, uh, in the new year. Uh, Moving on now, let's see. Christmas stuff. Um, So I know not everybody celebrates this time of year. That's cool. I mean, it's whatever you're kind of into, whether it's a a religious observance or not, whether it's just a purely commercial one like myself and my wife. You know, we don't really go for the the religious component of of Christmas, but we sure do like the presents. And we like the just that feeling of community, togetherness, family, that type of thing. And it's funny, we do a lot of like stereotypical Christmas stuff. So we've been watching a lot of old Christmas specials and just things that were were made like 50 or 60 years ago, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Frosty or the Grinch, like that old cartoon, the original one. It's crazy to think of how old they are because it's literally a lifetime. I mean, 50, 60 years, that that is a couple of generations. And it's funny when you watch them now and and. At first you watch them and you're like, wow, that's really good animation. And then you see them reuse the same animations over and over and over again. And then the voiceovers are, 
you know, a little lacking, but whatever. They were kind of inventing the medium at that point in time, right? I mean, they tell very simple stories, mostly 20 to 40 minutes long, made for television, made for kids. And I mean, I didn't watch them when I was a kid, but my wife did. So every year we fire up the old collection and this year we'll probably end. Well, actually this year we tried to end with Home Alone, but within like the first 10 minutes, we kind of looked at each other and and laughed and said, you know what? The, the casual child abuse in this movie is a little much. So we decided instead to watch The Muppets Christmas Carol with Michael Caine. Much better movie, I think. It's funny, we usually end with Die Hard, but I think that one might be on hiatus this year. Who knows, maybe it'll be our Christmas Day movie. But the point is, is that even though they're old and hokey and simple and low budget compared to today's standards, there's still something fun and special about them. I mean, we watched Frosty the Snowman the other day, and I swear I saw some of Peter Griffin's mannerisms in there. You know, just in the way they animate his movements and his body shape, it got me thinking about how everything that we do today is just an evolution of what happened before, right? The groundwork laid in those old shows is what paved the way for all the crazy technology we have now. The 3D modeling for animation, video games, CGI and movies, all that stuff, special effects. Every year, studios have developed and refined their technology, gotten a little better, a little faster, and so on and so forth, until what we started with, models hanging from strings zooming across the screen with a theremin playing in the background to Star Wars to now Avatar or something like that, is just, it's the gulf is so wide, it's hard to believe. And I'm curious about what blows your mind like that. Like when you think about the world, what is something that you've learned about it or what we've accomplished that just, boom, changes your perspective in some way? Let me know. I'm always fascinated by that kind of stuff. And you can always email the show at todaysjustokay at gmail.com. Now, moving on into the topic of the day, it's going to be a bit of a two-parter in the sense that, I mean, fronting is really... You know, when you're projecting or pretending to be someone you're not, there's two components to, right? There's the person you are when people talk to you, and then the person you appear to be when people look at you. And so I'm going to be talking first about the who we are when we talk, because I kind of boil this down to the idea that it's okay not to know everything or have done everything. And the best example of, of that kind of scenario is, have you ever been in a group and you're just kind of shooting the breeze and talking around, you know, whatever, whatever thing. And people are talking about the vacations they've been on or trips or whatever. And you ever lie, right? You want to be part of the conversation. You want to share your experience. You want to relate. And then you just pull something completely out of your ass. I mean, I know I have done that on occasion and I always feel terrible afterwards, but I think most of us could probably say at one point or another, we've done this and it's, you know, sometimes it's to cover our lack of knowledge or make ourselves seem more important or better read or in the know and all that stuff, right? It's it's almost instinctual in terms of our, our group dynamics. And so I was thinking about why we do this, right? Like underneath that, there has to be some reason why we feel it's necessary to make ourselves more interesting than we really are, right? Because the thing is, is I think that a lot of us are actually plenty interesting without all of the aggrandizing we do. But I think that because we don't believe that in ourselves, that's where we get into this issue of, okay, I need to, I need to play this up a little bit to seem more interesting or make it more funny or more relatable or more on point or whatever. And so thinking about the why, I started thinking about things like childhood, you know, childhood experiences or childhood lessons. I mean, growing up, how many times were you told 
don't do that. Don't say that. Be nice. Fit in. Um, don't make mistakes or don't behave in a certain way. Don't behave like a kid because, you know, it's annoying or whatever. And those little mistakes are sometimes made into a bigger deal than they are. And when that happens and you get that negative reinforcement, that can turn into fear of making mistakes or not being interesting enough or having to fight for attention. I mean, I grew up in a household with seven kids. So my parents were constantly just dealing with kind of the rabble. (laughs) This is this ridiculous crowd of children milling around doing all sorts of stuff. And there was a big age difference. Like my oldest brother is 10 years older than me. My youngest sister is four years younger, four or five years younger than me. So it's, it's like a 15 year gap between oldest and youngest, right? So there's a lot of different ages there. And that means that as parents, they didn't have a lot of time individually for us. They were just kind of, you know, splitting the average and trying to hope, hope for the best because they had to keep us fed. They had to keep us housed and clothed and basically alive. (laughs) So, so they had enough on their, on their plates to deal with. And you know, between sort of the fear of making mistakes and then not being interesting enough to pay attention to, right, that can compound in any kind of a group dynamic. Because externally, it's not just internally, but externally, I think that we're driven by media, by entertainment, by whatever, to constantly compare ourselves to others. If you think about Hallmark Christmas movies and stuff like that as as a genre and the type of stories they tell, they tell a very specific story about a very specific class of people. And, you know, these people have good careers, they have houses, they have property, they have money, they have, they don't have to deal with a lot of the stresses that other people have to deal with. And if you're constantly being hit with that in media, and that's constantly being reinforced as the appropriate way to live, if you don't fit into that, then there's obviously going to be some reflection, right? You're going to be thinking about, well, why, why don't I get to do that? Why am I not good enough for that? Right? I mean, it's not a perfect analogy, but you get what I'm saying. I hope. Anyway, I think that drives us to worry about how others will see us. And I know a lot of this comes back to self-esteem. Like it doesn't have to be low for this to happen. I don't think, I don't think you need to have a diagnosis of depression or generalized anxiety or something like that. I think this is kind of just a normal emotional response. And I also think it's kind of a common experience, right? I mean, some of us would just call it bullshitting, sitting around with your friends and everyone's lying through their teeth and you're just kind of, you're shooting, you're shooting the shit and trying to make people laugh and trying to keep the conversation going. But I also think that one of the ways sensationalism affects us psychologically is again, going back to earlier, we think that ordinary experiences aren't exciting enough. We have to make them bigger. We have to make them pop louder. Right? A chihuahua trying to bite you might not be scary, but turn that into a Doberman or a pit bull. And all of a sudden, ooh, you know, those things have major connotations. So it changes the dynamic and it changes how people listen. And it also changes what we're saying. And we do this for everything. When we talk about relationships, vacations, little adventures we've gone on, jobs, injuries, you name it, we tend to exaggerate them to try and captivate or underscore how important they were to us, right? And one of the major sort of components in this, I think that I could sort of point at and say, okay, this is probably 
This is probably where a lot of this is coming from is the idea of toxic positivity. So the cultural drive, either in, in professional life or personal life, for everything to be amazing all the time. People are supposed to be happy and adventurous and outgoing and successful and on and on and on and on. And the idea that everyone's life should be, you know, that picture perfect romantic comedy kind of thing. And life isn't like that. Even if you are all of those things that I mentioned, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. It's not all crap, but it's definitely a mix of positive and negative. And it's important that we recognize both of them and accept both of them and celebrate the good times and learn from the bad times. And that leads me into kind of the second part of this, which is why it's okay not to have everything or own everything, right? I mean, in addition to feeling that pressure to present in a certain way or to fit into a certain style of people, I think we also, as part of that, feel pressure to dress a certain way or drive a certain class of car, or own a certain type of house or, or whatever. But one of the problems with that is how do you decide what you need versus what you want? Like, what do we pay for and what do we either forego or wait for the right time? I mean, you've got your basic necessities, your food, water, housing, clothing, then your other general stuff like money, transportation, healthcare, education, right? Things that provide core services and access to those services. And then everything else is basically just a nice to have. And don't get me wrong, like I love the... I love the benefits of modern society. I love how convenient everything is. And I think that it's really important to have access to those things because it's what helps us live longer and live healthier and be more comfortable. But at the same time, there's also a question of how much of it are you able to afford, right? How is all of this stuff going to affect your bottom line? And, you know, trying to push back against that pressure, weighing the potential benefits you know, the difference between a better camera or a nicer computer or phone or bigger truck or more durable tools, you know, we have to think about things like how long is it going to last? How long am I going to be able to get a replacement for if it breaks? You know, is there a one year, five year lifetime guarantee on some of this stuff versus a year or 90 days or something for some of the less expensive things? You know, it's like some things in life are investments because it's either going to help us long-term or it's going to grow in value over time. And some things are liabilities. And I think it's important for us to understand what is either not going to go up in value or are volatile, so things like investments or stocks, and what things are more reliable. We also have to ask ourselves about our motivations for wanting things or why do we want this thing? Are we advertising? Are we, are we trying to show off, keep up with the Joneses? Or are we upgrading from something we already have? And then the question becomes, do you really need it, right? Like if I've got last year's best phone, do I need the best phone from this year? Depending on who you are, the answer may be yes, the answer may be no. But then the question then becomes is like, can you afford it, right? So the idea is, is it for utility or is it for appearances? And I like the idea of traveling as an example, right? Because you get an experience out of that, but you don't really get much tangible unless you're buying like crazy amounts of souvenirs and stuff like that. But even then, you could just order those online, right? So it's not like you need to go to the place to buy the thing when you can just get them on Amazon. So when it comes to a trip, right, if you're going somewhere just to say you went, I'd say that's kind of a waste of time. But if you're going there because you want to experience something, because you want to learn something, because you just want to relax and it's a nice place and you've always wanted to go, that's 
that's different. But if you're just going because you want to take some pictures and be like, ha ha, see, I went. That's really the wrong way of looking at things. And anything in life can fall into that. Because again, you know, if you're trying to keep up with other people, comparing what you have or what you've done or what you make to them, and you're buying cars or houses that are too expensive or more expensive than what you need because you equate stuff with status, what does it get us? I mean, really, right? It gets you a bunch of shit you don't need. You have debt, you have bills, and you have stress if you can't afford it. And if you can't afford it, you just get a house full of crap. And then this behavior can lead to a lot of negative outcomes, right? Like relationship breakdowns, or you can get stuck in a terrible situation and you just can't get out of it. You can lose what you've built. And I mean, again, there's nothing wrong with with things going wrong. I don't think it's anyone's goal to lose everything. You know, it's okay to reset if you need to, if you lose your job or you just, you get overloaded and you need to get back to basics. But I don't think you should be aiming for that as like a life goal. Like, oh yeah, I really want to mess my life up so bad that I'll lose my job, go bankrupt, and then move back in with my parents. I don't, I don't think anyone is thinking like that. So I'm not crapping on anyone who's had to go through that or, or is in that kind of a situation. I'm just saying that that's definitely unlikely to have been the plan. And, you know, at some point we have to look at ourselves and say, okay, you know, this is what I wanted, but what is reality? So I guess what I'm trying to get at is essentially what's the alternative, right? So if, if trying to be someone we're not and have stuff that we don't need is somewhat negative, what do we do to counteract those, those impulses? And I think one of the big things is to accept that it's okay not to know everything or have a story for every occasion. It's okay to listen and learn. And if you're interested in hearing more, just say so. Like be humble and honest, right? Someone's talking about something that you're interested in or that you don't have any experience in. Just say that. I don't have any experience with that. I've never done that. I haven't heard of that before. And then just ask some questions. Or, you know, if you're uncomfortable speaking up in a group, then just look it up on your phone or your computer or, you know, read about it later when you have a moment. The point is that nobody, not even the slickest, most well-traveled or extroverted or richest person knows everything. And they haven't done everything either. Because that's impossible. Period. Full stop. And anyone who claims that they have or that they have all the answers is full of it. I mean, I, I can tell you right now, I don't have those answers either. I have a few that work for me, but that's it. And you have to build your own toolbox. But starting from a place of honesty, that is going to help you. I guarantee it. Another thing that I would say is that a lot of people actually relate better to someone who doesn't need to be the center of attention all the time. Because that's part of the issue here, right? Look at me, listen to me, don't think less of me. But fighting for that attention doesn't really accomplish anything. And I mean, even if you win that competition, is it worth being slightly more important in a group of five or 10 people for a few minutes before the conversation just moves on to something else? You put all that energy into building a lie or an exaggeration and the payoff is 30 seconds of what? Faint praise or someone catching you? I mean, I've been called out before too and you know, someone just said, ah, you're full of it. Yeah, you're right. I just kind of just kind of had to admit it. Like, yeah, you know what? I didn't do that. I don't know why I said that. And you kind of eat crow for that second and then whatever. People laugh at you or whatever and then you move on. Like, it's not that big of a deal. I can tell you just from my own experience, being honest feels better. And it makes the times when you do have experiences to share all that more meaningful. You don't need to worry about coming up with something. You just get to ride along with everybody else, right? And that relaxation among my peers is, is a great feeling. So 
if we don't need to think about what I should have said or what I did say, or, oh God, I hope no one asks me about that later, right? And you're just being authentic. You're being you. I think that's what people like more. Real people, good, decent human beings aren't interested in a product line for a friend. They're interested in what's underneath that exterior. And I think the older we get, the more important that becomes because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I only have so much time for garbage these days. And every year that passes, I have less and less time for for nonsense. I really just, I do not care for it anymore. Now, everything that I've said about, you know, how we behave is also true about stuff that we own, our possessions. Because what you have is less important than who you are, right? Your car, your house, your clothes, your watch, the expensive trips you take, none of that really matters. Decent people don't care. Whether you drive a Ferrari or a Mercedes or a Ford or a Hyundai or a Kia or whatever, if the biggest two reasons you get something you don't necessarily need aren't I can afford it and I like it, then why are you doing it? right? Big houses are expensive. They take forever to clean. You need a lot of stuff to fill it up with. Do you use the space even? Does it make you happy? Luxury cars, boats, planes, all that stuff is kind of the same. It's all the same thing. And again, I have no problem buying that stuff if you can afford it and you really want it and you'll get some use out of it. I mean, if you've got a plane and a pilot's license and you enjoy flying because it calms you down or it makes you feel alive or it's just one of those things that you've always enjoyed all the power to you. But if you own a plane just so that you can tell people you own a plane and it just sits in a hangar all the time and you never take it up, what's the point? And again, I'm, I can't underscore this enough. I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy ourselves or indulge in our dreams every now and again. You know, it's funny. I realized about halfway through setting up this episode that it's going to be the holidays. And you know, why do I do this? Like, I'm talking about reducing our consumption and slowing down on the look at how great my life stuff is in the middle of presents and family get-together season. You know, you're home for the holidays or someone's come to visit you. And (laughs) I can already feel it. You know, it's like it's time to compete with your siblings and cousins and old friends, you know, to brag about how far you've come and what you've accomplished and blah, 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 blah. Or to argue about this and that. I just just think about how, how good does it make us feel when we're on the other side of it, when we're driving back to real life and we've told who knows how many people a bunch of bullshit. For what? I guess what I'm trying to say here in this long-winded rant is that it's more important to be balanced in our approach to these things. I think that's kind of the point of this podcast, right? I don't think we need to get everything or do everything under the sun to be good, well-rounded people. And I don't think that we need to pretend either because the more we get and the more we do or the more we say we've done or the more we say we've got, the less important each of those things become, both to us and to everyone we talk to. More importantly, if we fill up our brain with too much information, we're bound to forget some of it. And then, you know, it just becomes impossible to keep track of all this stuff. But more importantly, if you have to hit the same high all the time, you're constantly chasing that feeling, then it all starts to just feel normal or worse, less, right? To get to that same feeling, you have to up the ante. And anyone who's familiar with how addiction works will know exactly what I'm talking about here. And even though I'm not talking about addiction today, even if we take a step back and we just recognize that humans are pattern recognition machines and that the human brain adapts to patterns over time, that's why things get blunted. And if you've described a hundred times you've seen an amazing sunset or done an amazing thing or experienced a special moment, and then 
you get there and you have to experience that. And it's, it's the first time, but you've practiced all those times before. Maybe it doesn't hit right. Then what do you do? So that's why I'm saying it's important not to overdo it because it can help keep things special. And when it comes to owning things or stuff that we fill our houses up with or our apartments or whatever, having less of it can simplify our lives a great deal because the less stuff that we have or want, the less we care about it and the more focused that we can be on what really matters to us. And if I've learned anything about people in my 40 plus years on this planet, it's the being comfortable in your own skin, having the confidence to be yourself and do your own thing will get you farther than all the crap you can buy and all the lies you can tell. And even if it doesn't, you'll still be happier and more content with yourself. And you'll have better relationships and a better experience in life than if you try to go the other way. I know it works for me. But again, as always, just because I'm talking about this stuff doesn't mean I have it all figured out. So what works for you and what works for me may be very different. Take the good and leave the bad. And uh, it's just food for thought, right? Anyway, I'd say I've probably rambled on enough about this subject for now. So I'm curious what you think about it. Like if I hit the mark or missed it by a mile. So if you have any questions or comments, feel free to send them to todaysjustokay at gmail.com. Because yeah, it's always like hearing from people. I'll always like getting that feedback. It's also nice to know that I'm not talking to nobody. (laughs) All right, tip of the day. Let's talk about prioritizing. So as I said at the start, I am I'm still sorry this episode is late. You know, life is busy this time of year. I'm sure I'm not the only one in that situation. Where I work, a lot of the people that interact with me, they're, you know, going to take the next two weeks off. So it's been just constant bombardment of stuff for the last while. And then in addition to that, because of the holidays, there's more family responsibilities. There's all the shopping you got to do, the cleaning, the cooking. And then, you know, just spending quality time with my wife, getting the end of the year organized, all that fun stuff. You know, I've had clinic and other appointments, doing some writing, getting this podcast ready, playing around with some music. I feel like I need a podcast jingle of some kind. It seems to be something people do. So I've been playing around with that a little bit. The point is, there's lots to do and a finite amount of time to do it in. And that's why this tip is so important, right? Prioritizing is something we can always do better at. And sometimes it's also important to recognize that we can't do everything. We just do not have the time. We can't get to the things we want to do. So how do we manage? And in my view, you know, the best thing that we can do in a situation like that is identify the most important things. And then once we've sort of ranked everything is like, okay, well, What do I have to get done today? What do I have to get done tomorrow, this week, next week? What can wait? What can I put off? Whatever. And I mean, I generally classify things in my life based on their importance to just my existence, right? So my wife comes first, my job, second, family, friends, health, coffee, food, chores, hobbies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, down the list. And I didn't list those in sort of order as just kind of how, how they kind of came out of my brain and everyone's list is going to be different, but As long as you know what's most important to you, it's always going to be easy to figure out what needs to be done immediately and what can wait an hour, a day, a week, and so on. And I hate to say it this way, but brutal honesty can help in this, right? If there's a new gizmo or video game that you, you want to play around with, is that really more important than date night or getting work done on time or finishing your assignment, getting your paper in, that type of thing? Do you really need or even want to spend three hours scrolling on the internet? 
or do you do you want to use that time for something else right is that a good opportunity to knock one or two of those things out that you need to deal with and even if it's rest or relaxation like a good night's sleep for example that should be high on the priorities list because that's going to that's going to keep your body healthy and you know as you, as you get older you'll know what i'm talking about it's a never ending struggle <laughs> to keep it working so I guess what it comes down to is that we are so busy and we have so many competing priorities and stressors these days that it's almost impossible to find any sense of calm or peace in our day-to-day. But by eliminating some of those stressors, right, if we do what we can with what we have and plan for the things that we still need to get to, we can take a breather. There's no reason to spend all our time worrying about what comes next, right? Where to have a plan. We've prioritized what needs doing. I think one of the hardest things that I've learned in the last 20 years is how to give myself those mental and physical breaks. Everything's still going to be there when I come back so I can take time to calm down and get collected and stay sane, essentially. I build those breaks into my schedule now because I have to. And that's that's part of the reason why the podcast waited, right? I mean, this is a fun experience for me. This is cathartic. I enjoy it. But ultimately, it's it's not something that has to be done today. I don't think anyone should have to work on something every waking moment. Humans just aren't built like that. So as much as we need to prioritize, we also need to include downtime. And in that way, we've got a better chance of getting what needs doing done, but we'll also have something left over for ourselves at the end of it. And I'm back. And honestly, you probably wouldn't have noticed if I hadn't called it out, but I, uh, being the 24th of December, my wife and I are making a nice dinner for ourselves. And so right around lunchtime, she reminded me that we have turkey to make and a variety of other things to do. And so I put this on pause so that I could deal with that. And then, yeah, I just wanted to hang out with her for a little while because that's fun too. So this is a couple of hours later. Oh my goodness. My back is a little sore. My knees hurt a little bit more, but you know what? I'm going to get through this. I'm going to power through like a champ or at least like a, like the broken old man that I am. <laughs> anyway, so moving on, um, question. So I got something from a listener who wants to remain anonymous. Uh, episode two was about parental rights and I've changed the wording a little bit to prevent any sort of identifying details of the, the where and the when. So I hope they don't mind. Basically, I think that there was enough information in the original email that might be enough for someone to get a pretty good idea of who was talking or where they were. And, you know, when these types of subjects come up, I don't really like to share information if I don't have to, simply because that's drama people don't need, honestly. And I'm not here to make that happen or build that. I'm here to kind of calm things down a little bit, right? So it's not really that important, the who, uh, for their own peace of mind and my own, but the what they were talking about is very interesting. So I'm going to be focusing on that today. So the question boils down to basically, what do you do when an organization like Canadian Life Coalition is involved in your school board or your local elections? Or how can you be reasonable when someone is screaming at you that you're protecting pedophiles or encouraging kids to change their sexualities or you're discriminating against straight religious parents and kids and that type of thing, right? And that is a great question because ultimately... There's often a problem when you're dealing with these subjects where one side of the argument is not necessarily interested in, you know, any kind of rule structure. They're in, they're, they're in for a fight. They're not interested in having a discussion. They just want to argue with people and make people look bad, get their sound bites, put their crap on social media and do their whole gotcha, gotcha thing, right? 
And I mean, that's great for views and it's great for likes and it's probably okay for politicians looking for votes when people don't pay attention, but it's not really good for anything else. Real life doesn't work that way. So the challenge becomes when one side of the argument isn't willing to talk or basically goes into full on aggressive behavior, right? What do you do? And I mean, this goes both ways, whether you're arguing for or against a particular program or value or educational platform or whatever. There are plenty of people on one side who will scream and plenty of people on the other side who will scream back and vice versa. So I look at it as if you're going to participate in the process, you know, you have to come in in good faith. You have to be honest and you have to present your point of view and be okay with people agreeing or disagreeing with you. But I think in cases like this, it's also important that the people in charge of the meeting deal with it, right? So if you're running some kind of public outreach meeting or you know trustee meeting or something like that, you have to keep order. You have to keep people behaved. You have to establish rules. You have to stick to them. You know, you don't see judges just letting people do whatever they want in court. And I think any organization with public input needs to be hands-on in making sure that their operations are tidy and equitable and respectful. And I think in this day and age, that means being prepared to have people show up with signs and start shouting. I don't think that we can pretend anymore that that's not going to be a real issue. And yeah, it, it, it definitely sucks if some of the board members are either timid or maybe they support one group or another and they let that influence who gets to talk. I mean, politicians do that kind of crap all the time. They, they, call, they call upon their friends to speak so that they can get the, the talking points they want, right? But in terms of what concrete steps you can take, apart from being aware of who these people are and what their organizations stand for, and again, this goes both ways, right? So if you lean the other way, maybe read up on some of the anti-hate sites out there as well, right? So if you're more on the, whatever that group was called, the Canadian Life Coalition or whatever it is, right? If you're on their side, take a look at the anti-hate stuff. You may dislike what they have to say, but honestly, if you look at what they're talking about, it's not objectionable. And it's not to say that both sides are equal in the process. I hate those arguments where, you know, the false equivalency is is relied on. Oh, we got to have equal time or whatever. But th that's not true. Really what it comes down to is what evidence do you have to back yourself up? What experts agree with you? You know, how much science is behind who you are and what you're saying? It's not just about who screams the loudest. So at the end of the day, I do honestly think that everyone's more united than we think we are. And it's just that the temperature's too high and the nerves and emotions are up and there's just so much bullshit out there that it makes it impossible to get back to the basics most of the time. If you've got two people saying, here's what I want, here's what you want, oh, look at that, nine out of ten things that we're talking about are actually the same things, right? Would you look at that? No screaming required. The problem is, is that we're never in that situation where we're all just kind of sitting around a table and talking it out and hashing it out like we used to. Now it's all online or message boards or it's, you know, people shooting their own videos and ramping up everything because everybody's making money off of it. I mean, the problem with my proposal of like treating everything rationally <laughs> or trying to trying to treat it in a, in a more reasonable way is that it's it's not sexy. It's not gotcha, it's not haha, it's not emotional in the extreme, right? You're still going to feel those emotions, but you're going to sort of temper them with critical thinking and that type of thing. And that's not really great for making money. And it's not great for ratings. And so when I looked at the CLC site, 
I saw a bit what I expected, right? It's all fear and anger and hate-based. Their blog is a litany of posts about brainwashing and eroding freedoms and woke or alphabet mobs taking away democracy and imposing rules they don't agree with. Imposing rules, what they're talking about is laws, like actual legislation passed by the government, by the elected government. And this is what I talked about when I mentioned outrage factories in an earlier episode. Look at the tone, look at the evidence. What do they cite? What are their arguments in favor of? Are they more conciliatory or are they, you know, we're better than others or they're the, they're the devils that are trying to destroy the world or whatever it is, right? And so when I looked at the CLC, I saw a lot of what they were talking about was religious texts. So they take their lead from the Bible and anything that they kind of think supports their viewpoint. And don't get me wrong, those are fine for your personal beliefs. If you are a religious person who has a very conservative view of how people should live, that's fine for you. And it's fine for your community and your family. And I wish you all the success and joy in the world for following your beliefs. I don't think anybody should get in the way of that. I don't think telling anyone what they need to think is a good idea. But I also don't think it's a good idea to use those those texts, those things that you might find helpful to create policy that affects people who don't believe in them. Government is for everybody. It's not just for you or your friends or me and mine. And so the government has to balance the views of Christians and Muslims and atheists and basically every different type of belief structure and system and figure out, okay, how do we make sure that the most of us as like basically the biggest number of us as possible can get along and no one's getting thrown in jail just because they're living a slightly different way than than one person or the other. You may not agree with it and that's fine, like I said, but we all have to understand that the world is bigger than just us and forcing people into this tiny box that suits our views or my views is really not going to be helpful long term. Might make me feel good one day, right? But then guess what? The next day, the next day, the next day, people are going to be chafing against that that limitation. And over time, that gets worse and worse and worse. I mean, there's a reason why we moved away from that 20 to 30 years ago. And now we're kind of in a period where people are looking back with that nostalgic vein and thinking, oh, things were so much greater before the laws changed. We should go back to that old time. And that never works. That really never works. But anyway, when I'm looking at an organization like the CLC, any anytime I'm looking at an organization, I look at the facts. So what does CLC do in terms of their research, in terms of what they're saying is the basis of their argument. And I'm not a religious person, so I don't I don't really look at religious texts because again, those only apply to the people who believe in them. And if you're not particularly invested in a Christian or evangelical viewpoint, I don't think you should have to pay attention to them, to be honest with you. That doesn't mean that they're inherently bad or someone who does follow them is inherently bad, but again, Don't tell me how to live my life. I won't tell you how to live yours. Pretty straightforward. Pretty reasonable, right? So I take a look at the CLC and I take a look at their research and I see what they're, what they're citing beyond religious texts. And what I find is an article. The example I saw was an article by Mark Regnerus and it's titled, how different are the adult children of parents who have same sex relationships? Findings from the new family structure study, 2012. And so they use this study as a way to justify 
their view that basically, in, in a sense, LGBTQ families are not as good as straight families in producing well-adjusted children. Here's what they don't tell you. There was an audit and some investigative reporting into the study that they're citing, and behold, the findings. So the first thing is the author accepted over $700,000 from think tanks opposed to gay marriage to produce the article. Uh, It also happens that uh, the author is deeply conservative and deeply religious. Again, not necessarily a problem in and of themselves, but when you're taking money from organizations that have policy goals that line up with your personal beliefs, you tend to produce research results that mirror the goals of the organization that's trying to pay you, right? So it makes your conclusions suspect. You know, it's the same reason why a lot of drug companies, when they pay for research, lo and behold, you find out that their particular drug is much more effective than any other drug on the market. It's not because it is, it's because they're paying the doctor to say that. So we have to be very careful about how we interpret research and specifically research into social sciences because it's all subjective. The other thing too is is just it's not easy to be objective, right? We're people, we're not robots. So even the most disassociative person is still going to be somewhat biased. But the reason I have concerns or deep concerns about this study is that over 200 social scientists, and what I'm saying is basically professors and PhDs at universities all across the United States, uh, actually wrote to the publishing journal contesting the findings because, not to take my word for it, but there were significant methodological errors in the way the study was conducted, especially in the way the data was collected and where it came from. I mean, like he was relying on data that was provided to him, not from a independent, you know, university study. It was from a marketing campaign, right? So a marketing firm, I guess, a marketing firm came to him with a bunch of information that they had pulled from people that they had pulled or talked to on the phone or whatever. And the, the level of, I guess you could say, reliability of data like that when it's not in a controlled environment or it's not produced in a way that is recognized by a variety of, you know, governing bodies or boards. It wasn't vetted properly, that type of thing. It, it makes it very difficult to trust not just the, the information, but anything that comes out of it. Right. And again, even if his data was, was accurate, his article wasn't properly peer reviewed. You know, they didn't actually vet the article properly. His own department head disavowed his conclusions. The department head at the university he was at distanced themselves from the findings. They're like, no, I'm not, I'm not standing behind this. And even after the fact, Regnerus himself admitted there were problems. That's a far cry from a unbiased, legitimate argument, at least, at least from my perspective. Anyway. If you're going to look at the CLC, I'd suggest you also look at a similar site on the other side, like AnnieHate.ca or the Southern Poverty Law Center. They're pretty good. There are tons of resources out there. And always think about this stuff critically. Anyone or any organization, look at who they represent. Who are they fighting for? What are they fighting for? And who's making money off of it? What does what they want look like for you and your family and for the people you care about? If it's hate-based or fear-based, where, oh, if we allow these people to have some of what we have, everything's going to fall apart. Chances are you're going to be on the wrong side of that because equity, like true equity, equality, 
living well and getting along, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not about having a finite amount of rights that you have to give out to people, and some people get some and some people get others, and after a while you can't share anymore, otherwise you lose everything. That's not how equity works. Equity is you provide the rights to everyone. You work on getting rid of the systemic barriers that exist for the for the benefit of some and not others, and everyone comes at it from a reasonably equal standing. And that makes it harder for some people who have benefited from those from those barriers, right? Like the best example, straight white men have historically had a much easier time in North America and in Europe and in a wide variety of places around the world, earning money, getting jobs, owning property, saving money, investing in things, that type of thing. It's just been easier for us to do that. It's not easier for all of us to do that. Like just because you're straight and white and male doesn't mean you're going to have a great easy time in life. But there is an element of advantage there that the data doesn't lie. It's it's quantifiable in a way in terms of how much longer we live and our net worth and the number of us in in significantly higher paying positions. So again, if, the, if that's what you're fighting for, you're fighting for the maintenance of that system, you have to understand that there's going to be a whole lot of other people who are on the other side of it who don't agree with you. And at some point, they're probably going to outnumber you. And that's just because that's, that's how life works. Our children will always grow further than we expect. They don't necessarily go backwards in the way they think about things. Usually we push forward, both in terms of generalized knowledge and also just in terms of what we're willing to accept in our day-to-day lives. And if the world's moving forward and we're not, we're going to get left behind. So best to avoid that if at all possible. Anyway, what was I talking about? Uh, right. What can you do? So actual concrete steps of what you can do if a group comes in and basically starts to <laughs> throw hands, essentially. I'd say the first thing, like especially in this situation, because you know it's sort of specific to school boards, get in touch with your school board to make sure they have policies in place for public meetings. That way, you know what the rules are. And if you know what the rules are, you can make sure that they are adhering to them. And when they're not, you can call them out for it. Uh, Step two, get involved with the process. So actually read up on and vote for your trustees. Know who's coming in and and running in those elections. Making sure that you're aware of their policies and what they want to do. You know, don't just assume everything's going to be okay. I think this is kind of a sticking point for me, right? Is that a lot of people complain about the way the world is going and yet aren't actually engaged in trying to make sure it doesn't go that way. So they're not looking at who they're voting for critically. They're just either not voting at all or they're just voting for the the party that their family's always voted for or whatever, right? I mean, you only have a limited number of chances to change things. And if you're just a regular person on the on the ground, we only matter if we are gathered together, if we're bound together, right? We're not billionaires. We're not in the halls of power. We're just regular people doing all the work. So yeah, if we're not willing to fight to make sure that the board stays even just a little bit balanced, people who have are going to just try and take more and we're going to become have-nots pretty damn quick. So yeah, maintain that vigilance because things don't run themselves. Things aren't always going to work out unless we keep pushing for that. I mean, if you've got kids in schools, 
Make sure you get to know the teacher and the principal because they're the ones who are going to have the most direct impact on your on your kids. So what is the teacher like? What is the principal like? And don't be afraid to just have a conversation and talk to them and be like, hey, you know, like, what are you teaching? What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Because they'll usually be happy to have that conversation with you. And if you're worried about your kid's development and you kind of itemize how and in what ways you're worried, they'll probably work with you in some manner to make sure that your beliefs or your 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 views are respected. And likewise, if if they're not going to do that, then you have the opportunity as a parent to do enrichment with your own child at home where you can provide them with context and that type of thing. So you do have the opportunity to directly influence your child's learning, but you also have a good opportunity to get to know the structure they exist in at the school. Um, Also, depending on what you support, get in touch with a reputable organization and see what they're about. Are they level-headed or just reactive and angry all the time? So whenever I'm thinking about supporting a cause or something like that, I take a look at the cause, I take a look at the people who represent it, and I take a look at how how they come across. And again, if it's all fire and brimstone, and support us because we're the only thing standing between you and total ruin, I do not have time for that bullshit. I just don't. But if they're like, hey, you know, we are interested in making the world a better place and we are interested in making sure the kids are safe and we're making sure that, you know, they're learning the most that they can learn and da-da-da-da-da, that comes from a different place than fear and anger and hate and rage that the world is changing. World's going to change anyway, so we got to come to terms with that in some manner. Um, and then finally, like in addition to going to the meetings, make friends, because at the very least, then you'll have some backup. Any organization, they usually come together, and if you are going to counteract that influence, you need to have your own group as well. So look for people who think about things in similar ways to you, who are not incendiary, but who are more again rational and balanced in the way they look at things, and then work towards whatever goal it is that you're you're working towards. Bearing in mind that people aren't going to always be happy with it. Bearing in mind people are going to disagree with you and that that's okay. Now, I know my way isn't perfect, and this is definitely not the be-all and end-all of the conversation, but I think it's a good starting point. Usually people on the other side, not the ones rabble-rousing, I want to make that very clear, but the people on the ground, the people who are angry or upset or afraid, they're usually being lied to in some way because people don't just kind of fly off the handle for no reason. There's something triggering that behavior. That doesn't mean that they're not responsible for what they're doing or what they're saying, whether it's out of ignorance or whatever. We all have that responsibility to inform ourselves on what's going on. But if you can, if it's safe to do so, go into the discussion as people first. Don't just attack them, but disagree with them and raise the commonalities. I can see that that person really cares about the safety of their kids. I care about the safety of my kids too. Here's how our approach differs, right? And then again, if that doesn't work or they mistreat you, that's when you can properly defend yourself. That's when you can see whether or not they're coming at this from a good faith perspective or not. And that's when you can either respond in kind or or go from there. Because these things, they can escalate. And I'm not advocating for passiveness. I'm advocating for a reasonable approach, but sometimes that means you have to defend yourself. That means you have to fight for what you believe in. Not violently. I just mean 
through votes and policy and arguments and that type of thing, discussions, debates, etc., supporting the people that believe in the same things you do. That's what I'm talking about. So I hope that's helpful. Um, I've probably just muddied the water a little bit, but I think that there's a few nuggets of truth in there that should provide some kind of, of guidance or, or help. And again, best way to deal with it is to look for a reputable organization that is specifically working on countering the influences of whatever it is you're having a problem with. And then taking a look at that organization and what resources they have, what advice they can provide, because that's that's their whole job. That's the whole reason they exist. And then take a look at whether or not they are doing so in a way that you feel is compatible with the way you live. Because again, if they're they're freaking out every 10 seconds and that's not who you are, chances are you're not going to have much, much in common with them and vice versa. Anyway, um, let's see. So we're at about the one hour mark. Um, yeah, I think I got time to do chapter three. So just give me a second. I'm going to do chapter three of Lancet, my book available on Amazon. Links in the description below. All right, I'm back with chapter three of Lancet. Chapter title, Boatman Securities. It's a little after lunch local time when Rene Caron's calm line buzzes. He's in his office, fading in and out of awareness, allowing his mind to wander and the stresses of his company to roll off his shoulders. His secretary is deferential, her apologies just shy of profuse, but he brushes them aside. The circumstances warrant it. Linda Warren isn't someone you ignore, and she only calls when something's gone very, very wrong. As a commanding officer, she'd been a typical alpha, demanding and harsh, with keen eyes, little patience, and a vindictive streak. Skilled beyond her years and ambitious as hell. That was decades ago. These days, she's worse. A predator who's grown into her own, with skills sharpened on a thousand hunts. But Karan's not the same either. He's no longer a junior yes-man hoping for a career in intelligence. Now he's the man they call when there's an unofficial mess to clean up. Extraction, espionage, neutralization. His company specializes in what he likes to call quiet warfare. Just a fancy way of describing Unity's dirty work. Linda, how are you? He opens with fake cheerfulness. There's a nagging voice in the back of his head reminding him to be careful. She'd been a vulture in the old days, a devourer of information, always looking for an advantage. You don't care. Blunt as ever. Eh, you're right. Time and money had burned away most of his bad habits. Deference to traditional authority being one of them. So what can I do for the grand old government today? He's selective in which government contracts he accepts, if only to minimize the bureaucratic crap he has to put up with. But Linda's different, and not just because she's a director in Unity Intelligence with an entire division under her thumb. Lancet. Lancet. Karen balls his hands into fists until his knuckles are white, then reflexively releases them. That word comes with a whole host of raw memory and emotion. His first permanent disappearance at Warren's order. I see. There's a familiar twinge of fear as he relives the moment. Hostages, men and women, mewling just meters away, too afraid to beg for their lives. He can still see their captor. That monstrous bitch regarding him with those cold, emotionless eyes as she told him to step out of the airlock and off the ship he'd been instructed to provide. A ship he'd just poisoned. Ever so slightly mangling its navigation system, making its last jump a ticket into oblivion. Hostages for a ship. That was the deal. If she'd broken her promise, if she'd decided to bring a little extra insurance with her, a lot more people would be long dead. As a young man, idealistic and foolish, he'd thought the price would be worth paying because no one wanted to see that boat again. No one was supposed to. It only occurred to him afterwards that Warren hadn't stepped forward. He lasted a few more years, but once he realized she'd burn every last drop of talent and energy out of him before she let him advance, he resigned and went the private route. Even then, she saw a new opportunity in him, 
became his benefactor. Most of his early contracts came from her office. Referrals to a one-man operation. He'd taken the business, reaped the rewards of many jobs well done, and enjoyed a lifetime and a half's worth of success. All while knowing that someday she'd call in the favor. I'm sending you what we have. Warren doesn't make offers. She gives orders. I'm hired. This isn't a clean line. It is now. That kind of assurance made her easy to hate. Call me back when you've looked it over and picked your team. And with that, the line goes dead. Nobody comes back from an alter space blind fire. Without a precisely aimed and calibrated shot, you either pop out inside a star or planet or some other obstruction, or in the middle of nowhere. Without a second slug to bring you back, it's a slow death. Because for all the stars and planets and little bubbles of life out there, there's infinitely more empty space to get lost in. Recovery just doesn't happen. Warren's packet doesn't contain much. A crash report from a planetary survey and a serial number request. But the video shows him what he needs to see. Confirmation. Karen checks the point of origin. A backwater named Snow he never heard of. So remote it relies on darts to communicate with the rest of the universe. As for the rest, it was a preliminary crash report. So, her desiccated corpse had cratered into the planet. All good so far? The hull didn't break up, and there was enough juice to fire up the engines and run an assistant re-entry. That should be impossible. The gunboat she'd taken was purposefully underfueled and undersupplied. It'd have to last, what, 50, 55 years? Scenarios churn inside his head. The ship drops back into real space far, far away from any habitable planet. Emergency beacon or active station. The only option would be to chart a course to the nearest one and hope for the best. Eventually, the occupant runs out of food, water, and air and dies. So what next? Once the ship detected no living souls aboard, it'd check its course and shut down, leaving a trickle of power to the emergency sensors. Nothing unusual about that. It was what ships were programmed to do to maximize chances of discovery and salvage. And when the gunboat reached its destination, it had atmosphere and jolted awake, attempted to follow its final instructions and land, but was running on fumes. Cue up the crash and an end to half a century's peace and quiet. Karen summons the secretary, tells her who to bring in. Then he calls Warren back and waits while a series of assistants patch him through. That was fast. She isn't surprised or impressed. You want me to recover the body? Confirming the girl was dead wouldn't hurt anybody's sleep but he'd bet good money what Warren really wants is the gunk they'd put inside her head and dispose of any wreckage. Right. Still paranoid. That gunboat wouldn't have an active unity registration. Even if most of the weapon racks were empty, they'd still left a few missiles in the hold to allay suspicion. And those warheads were designed to take a beating. Untraceable unity ordnance would be worth quite a bit to the right buyer. What's the situation on the ground? The locals are prepping search and rescue. I am classifying the crash site as a security threat, so anyone who wants to poke around will either pull back or have to deal with you. I'm compiling a file on the first responder. All right, down to business then. Let's talk cost. Okay, that is the end of chapter three and with it, the podcast. Thank you for listening. As always, I appreciate it. If you are interested in what I'm doing or enjoy this content, please like and subscribe. And otherwise, if you have questions, comments, concerns, or anything like that, please send us an email at Today's just okay at gmail.com. I will see you next time and hope you have a great uh, holiday season, whether you celebrate or not. I just hope that you have some good time off, some rest, relaxation, good food, presents if you want them. And with that, I'm out of here. Have a great day. Talk to you later. Bye-bye, everybody.